Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Was there ever a time when people thought of God as female? Who were the Knights Templar? Could they have been active in New England hundreds of years before the voyage of Columbus? Hello and welcome to the 771st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON. 1240 AM and 99.3 FM, um, and this is our 11th year on the air. I'm Ben, and those nagging questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and dad, Paul. And today we bring you a strange mixture of subjects that could all be related, after all. Uh, and if you'd like to be a part of today's show, you can call us at 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere in the, uh, well, anywhere really. Um, or you can email us, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for those. A lawyer-turned-novelist, David S. Brody, is a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer and author of nine novels. A graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School, he is a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, or NERA, and is an avid researcher in the subject of pre-Columbian exploration of America. He has appeared on History, Travel, and Discovery Channels, and PBS. Uh, All six books of his Templars in America series have been Kindle Top Ten Bestsellers. He lives in Westford, Massachusetts. His website, uh, if there are any more, you can give them to us later, davidbrodybooks.com. So, David Brody, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. It's great great to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's great to have you with us. So, I guess let's start off with with a a seemingly simple question, but it is not that simple. Um, What do we mean by the feminine aspects of deity? Yes, yeah, so Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years. And for the first, say, 196,000 of those years, we've always thought of the, the god figure, the deity, the giver of life as being a female. Because that's, that's what we've always seen. The female gives life, Mother Earth, however you want to look at it. It wasn't until uh, the time of Abraham, almost 4,000 years ago, that that sort of flipped itself onto its head and we started thinking of God as being this bearded male figure. But again, for the first 196,000 years, it was always a woman. And and so when we think of the female aspect of God, there's still, even though we've had 4,000 years of, of Western religion sort of emphasizing the, the, the male aspect, there are still aspects of the deity that we still we still see the female presence. Um, and, and, and that's fascinating to me because, you know, as kids, you always just think of this male figure. But again, throughout history, it's always been the female. Hmm. Uh, I just wanted to make a point. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, for some of our longtime listeners, it's very unusual for us to have novelists on the show, fiction writers, uh, and we've had a string of them lately. But uh, people like David are all fact-based fiction writers, and fiction is a great way to uh, convey nonfiction ideas. I think you know. So th- that's one of the reasons we have David on today, and he's uh, very articulate and very happy to have him. So, David. Yeah. Uh, the whole now, as you know, my my background is in theology and philosophy, and so the whole idea of any gender assigned to God is very interesting. In researching our 2016 book, Ben and I wrote together. We we uh, got into some of the research that I'd done earlier on uh, the Andaman Islanders and uh, Nicobar Islanders, uh, the San and Khoisan Bushmen, and some of the most ancient. Uh, ideas about God that had gone back, you know, in, in the people with, with the, the oldest DNA, okay, uh, which were the ones I just mentioned. One mm-hmm. of the strange things that I found very interesting was that, um, and, and, uh, 
it was it Stephen Langdon, the, the researcher from the 1930s uh, and 20s and 30s, found out that that monotheism may very well have preceded polytheism. In other words, monotheism, the worship of one god, had uh, gone before the worship of many gods. I mean, most of us grew up thinking that, you know, everybody worshipped all these gods, and, and then all of a sudden it got down to the one. It may have been just the opposite, you know, at least in some ways. So when you look back at that concept that the these ancient, very ancient peoples had, we found that you've got not just one God, you've, you've got what, what would amount to, I guess what today we would call a sort of trinity, uh, a female, a male, and a child, which is very often us, okay? Have you found anything like that, and can you comment on that as far as the nature sure. of God? And yeah, that? well, first of all, that, that's just the natural, that's the family unit, so of sure. course that's what we look yeah. to. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Many people believe that's really the father, the son, and the mother. You know, mm-hmm. and that and that's people like Bernard de Clairvaux elevating the Virgin Mary during medieval times uh, up to a level of veneration. I think that's what he was trying to do as well. This this idea. Well, let's back up for a second. The idea that we can have a healthy society or a healthy religion that is all male dominant is is a non-starter. It just doesn't work. The healthy organisms in nature have a balance between male and female. And when you when you talk about the idea of polytheism and monotheism, let's go back to the let's go back to the book of Genesis. The first three words: Bereshit bara Elohim. That's in the right. beginning, in the beginning, God. But the word Elohim is a Hebrew word, and it's a plural. The the im ending in Hebrew is a plural. So it's not in the beginning God. It's in the beginning. God's plural. And well, more interesting than that is the word Elohim, its singular form, Eloha, is a feminine word under Hebrew grammar rules. Absolutely. So we even see these vestiges of this idea of multiple gods or female gods. Similarly, the word Yahweh, the ineffable tetragrammatron, yod heh again, is another feminine word under Hebrew grammar rules. And the scholars and the rabbis, they go through all sorts of uh, you know, calisthenics and machinations to try to explain this all away, but the, the even the language itself talks about a multitude of gods and a feminine aspect to the deity. Absolutely, and that's just what we found. We put that in our books, and uh, we've gotten some interesting feedback. Uh, however, so, some uh, rabbis who are, I'm thinking of one I studied Hebrew under, actually, because I wanted to read Genesis in the original, um, uh-huh. And to get through, and, and that's what you find. You find a lot of awfully weird things that don't come across in English. But in any, but, but in any case, um, it was extremely interesting to do that. And uh, the idea, however, of assigning gender at all is it, Ben. You look like you have a question. Oh yeah, I was actually. Okay, well, go ahead. I'll continue. Well, I was going to say, I mean, there's there's an argument, you know, just playing devil's advocate here because I'm, I'm on both of your side. Uh, but I I did hear an argument that if you're if you're reading stuff from the Torah, that it's technically up to interpretation. That the words that are there can be interpreted very differently by very different people. That, that's true. Depending on because in ancient Hebrew, uh, as David w- will will back us up on, you know, there there were no the, the words weren't separated and there were no vowels. Yeah. But today vowels, there are vowel yeah, marks. Exactly. Yeah, well, Ben, you're, you're totally correct, but the, the bigger picture, the big point is that throughout uh, all Western religions, we even even though the, the, the masculine is, is glorified today, we still have 
the feminine sort of lurking in the background, lurking in the shadows. Oh, yeah. And in your introduction, you talked about the Knights Templar, and that's sort of how I came to all this, because my research has, has basically concluded that the reason the Templars were outlawed by the church is that the Templars understood the importance of the female in the Godhead and were pushing for her elevation, and the church wanted nothing to do with that. They wanted the patriarchy, the men, the, they wanted the status quo, the orthodoxy of the Middle Age uh, patriarchal church, and that's what caused the church and the Templars to butt heads. And so that's sort of how I came to all this, and, and throughout, uh, the, throughout the, the study of the Templars, whether we see them in Europe or eventually we think they came to America, we see these mentions and these hints and these, sometimes they're not just hints, sometimes they're, they're hit, hit us right over the head with it, this idea that the feminine is really important. And I think that given what's happened today in society, that's an important message. We were just going to transition over into that. Your ah, psychic powers are uh, pretty sharp today, David. So, <laughs> um, But the Knights Templar, uh, that, that is a, uh, a common belief, and, and I tend to think it may be correct. Uh, one of the things, though, in pretty much throughout all of human history is, in a way, it's all about bucks. Okay. Now, can you tell us more yeah. about the Knights Templar, how they started, the wealth they accumulated, and how this might have affected any kind of um, work by the, work by the church or interpretation by the church had they really worshipped uh, the female aspect or at least tried to bring it out. Yes, so, so the Templars were, were formed by nine French noblemen in the early years of the 12th century. The, um, the idea, the Crusades had just begun, and, and, and the European countries had, had taken Jerusalem and parts of the Holy Land back from the, from the Muslims, and the idea was to go over there and allow for uh, the pilgrims to safely visit these religious sites. They needed almost a police force, and that was sort of the the original reason for these nine French noblemen to go over there. But what they did once they got there is they started digging under the Temple of Solomon. And no one's quite sure what they found, but within about ten years, whatever they found, whether it was treasure, whether it was uh, ancient writings, whether it was true uh, the true secrets of early Christianity, no one's quite sure what it was. They brought it back to Europe and they leveraged that uh, in such a way that they quickly became one of the most powerful and wealthy groups in all of Europe. Um, one of the things that I think they probably found was knowledge. Remember, we, Europe had just come through the Dark Ages, uh, things like science, uh, navigation, medicine, architecture, uh, all that, even literacy, had been lost to Europe. But the Arab world continued uh, to maintain and develop its intellect. And I'm sure it was quite eye-opening for the French noblemen and the other Templars who went to the Middle East, we think of it as sort of backwards today, but back then it was much more advanced in Europe. And they, so they brought back all this knowledge. And knowledge was a real threat to the church. When you think about how the church made its money, oh, you're sick, come pray, by the way, leave something in the donation bin, and we'll cure you, as opposed to the Templars now come back and say, oh, we learned about all this great medicine in the Arab world. Don't pray to be saved. Come take this herb or come take this medicine. So it was a real economic threat to the church having this new knowledge coming back from the Middle East to Europe. Okay. Now, as far as the Templars in New England, that, that's a theme, or at least America, that's a theme of, of, of your books. Can you kind of transition us from the activities in the Middle East and, and their, their sure. uh, you know, into the New World, uh, as so-called? So right, so, so, so we're sort of compressing this all into 200, it's a 200-year history. The Templars were around for about 200 years, 
and obviously things you know it, it, this is a this is a, a shorthand version but they they acquired incredible amounts of power and wealth and then eventually the crusades ended and and Jerusalem was lost back to the Muslims and so the Templars returned to Europe with all this knowledge and all this wealth and there really wasn't much for them to do the church was concerned that they again were bringing back sort of uh, dangerous ideas these these ideas that uh, of, of, of knowledge the idea that perhaps the feminine is important um, and and the Templars saw what was happening saw that the church was uncomfortable with them, saw what had happened to a group called the Albigensians in France. The Albigensians were trying to practice a, a, a version of Christianity that was less than orthodox, and tens of thousands of them were wiped out. And I think what happened is the Templars saw the writing on the wall, and they said, they said, eventually the church is going to turn on us. We need a place, a safe haven, to go to settle and to hide our treasures, to hide our secrets. And that's what caused them to turn westward and to start exploring uh, across the Atlantic. And I think that there, there's evidence that they came over as early as the 12th century, and there's strong evidence that they came over in the late 1300s, about 100 years before Columbus. We have lots of artifacts in and around New England. But I think the reason they came was they understood that eventually they were going to have to butt heads with the church. They wanted a place they could come to and and almost, again, have a safe haven, what they call the New Jerusalem. Yes. One point that perhaps we ought to make at, at this uh, stage is to um, is that when you look back over history, even what we know about prehistory, global trade, for lack of a better term, was probably quite common. Uh, if you know how to sail and how to navigate, which a lot of people did, it's not all that difficult to go from Britain or Scandinavia to Iceland to Greenland to Canada Right. Uh, without a lot of trouble. Well, if there were Normans that were also part of the Templars too, yes, because they their ancestors were the Vikings. So. Yeah, some of our own ancestors. Yeah, I mean they, they probably you know have. could have inherited some sort of navigation techniques that the Vikings also used. Well, there's well, clearly, 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 they were just following in the Norse footsteps, I, as you said, island hopping their way across the North Atlantic. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. Had been, it had been done. Hundred, I won't say hundreds of times. It had been done dozens of times before. So the idea that the Templars or somebody else would have done it before Columbus, to me the surprising thing would have been if they didn't do it. Like yeah, right. if, exactly, the <laughs> North right. did it. We did. Here, here's the maps. We know yeah. how to do it. Here, here, you know, there's good, there's good things over there. There's trade. There's, there's fishing. There's timber. There's lots of reasons to go. And here's the, here's how you do it. So the idea that no one else would have followed in their footsteps is is, is a little bit silly. Well, I think another point we have to make is that our ancestors were not stupid. We think of them as being, you know, kind of dumb, you know, grunting in caves. You know, were they stupid, they wouldn't have survived. Only the smartest survived. Right, and, and, so, and let's not forget, when the, again, when the Templars were in the Middle East, the, the natural allies that they would have had would have been the remaining Christians in, in Lebanon. These would have been known as the, as the Maronite Christians. Right. Uh, and these people were the descendants of the ancient seafaring Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians were excellent navigators. Mm, yes, they had boat. They had boats much bigger than Columbus. And so I've always thought that it's the Phoenicians that sort of gave the Templars the maps and charts and technology they would have needed to cross the Atlantic. They could have been following in the Norse footsteps, as you said, but also it would have been the Phoenician maps and charts that would have been used. Um, I think the Phoenicians, we, you know, we know they, they circumnavigated Africa, you know, 3,000 years ago. So the idea that the Templars couldn't have done it, 
uh, as you said, those the ancient people were much smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. Well, oddly, the Crusades, as, as terrible as they were, basically provided the the foundation for you know the Renaissance in Europe, because everyone kind of like forgot about Greece. Everyone kind of forgot about the classics. Everyone just sort of was you know focused on not dying from plagues. That by the time you know the Crusades happened, it opened up this whole new world of knowledge. So who knows what kind of secrets they learned? You're exactly right. It was it was um, you know, architecture, medicine, science, the arts, uh, navigation. We talked about. They brought everything back to Europe. Europe really had gone back to grunting and almost living in caves. I mean, Europe at that time was oh, really God, yeah. in tough shape uh, intellectually. Yeah. But as you said, that was that's the seeds to the Renaissance. So, what's some of the evidence in New England of the presence of the Templars or America in general? Right. So, um, you know, I live in Westford, Massachusetts. So I come at it from uh, an artifact that we have up here called the Westford Night. Mm-hmm. And Westford, for those who don't know, is, is up near uh, just uh, near Lowell, near the New Hampshire border. We have a carving of a medieval knight, and and the legend is that in 1398, 1399, a Scottish explorer by the name of Prince Henry Sinclair uh, followed the Viking path across. And his mother, even though he was Scottish, his mother was a Norse woman, so he would have had those charts and maps and oral history, uh, and came up the Merrimack River to explore, and uh, one of the knights died, and they carved a, 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 an effigy in the rock ledge to memorialize that knight. And so we have a, a, a tourist site here in Westford, and, and again, that's that's sort of the legend 100 years before Columbus, and there's a number of sites and artifacts in the area that seem to support that, other carved rocks and other artifacts, but then going down to Rhode Island, probably the most important artifact we have is in Newport, something called the Newport Tower, which I'm sure you guys are familiar oh, with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you go to Newport, it, it's, it's a round stone tower in the Romanesque style, and the literature uh, on site talks about being uh, built by uh, the governor, Benedict Arnold, the great-grandfather of the trader Benedict Arnold, yeah. during the time period 1675 to 1677. The problem with that is, is that it... The design of that tower doesn't work as a windmill. It, a, a windmill in, in, during those periods was built on a solid base, and it would taper itself upwards like a salt and pepper shaker. This is on eight pillars, eight shaky pillars that would not withstand the lateral forces. There's a number of reasons why that just doesn't work as a windmill. It might have been retrofitted for you know, during wartime. That 1675 to 77 time period is is uh, King Philip's War, the Metacomet. Uh, Native American uprising. So mm. they might have thrown a sail up there for a couple of years, but the idea that it was built for that makes no sense. There's a lot of evidence that indicates that that structure is medieval Scottish. The unit of measurement is the Scottish L. The prototype to that uh, is very similar to, similar to a lot of Templar church structures in Europe. Um, the, uh, the group I belong to, you mentioned in the introduction, Nira, we did some quick... Uh, salvage archaeology when the town was digging up the walkway around the tower a few years ago and we found a piece of mortar and in ancient times mortar was made with seashells because of the lime and we found a piece of seashell still on the mortar and we sent that to Woods Hole Oceanographic Society for carbon dating and the dating came back as early 1400s so there's a lot of cluster of dates right around the year 1400 that seems to indicate there were groups of people here they were probably Scottish they were related to the Knights Templar uh, and again, I always go back to, we shouldn't be surprised by that. We know the Norse were here in the early parts of the 11th century. There are lots of reasons to come back and forth for trade, for economic advantage. Uh, the surprising thing would have been if people didn't come back, not that they did. So if that's the case, then 
why does modern archaeology keep it kind of under wraps? Archaeologists like to say uh, it's not evidence if it doesn't come out of the ground, which is, you know, as a lawyer, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by training, I, I sort of look at that and say, boy, wouldn't life be great if I could go into court and say, Your Honor, it's not evidence unless it's fingerprints. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how do you get away with that? Like, there, there are so many different ways to, to, to win a case or to prove something in history. There's, cart, there's, there's ancient maps. There's oral history from the Native Americans. There's geology. There's DNA testing. There's chemistry. There's so much that doesn't, quote, unquote, come out of the ground. But archaeologists say they like to sort of have their blinders on and say, you know, if it doesn't come out of the ground, it's not really good evidence. And the problem with that is how what percentage of the earth has been dug into by an archaeologist? An infinitesimally small percentage. I mean, you just don't see it that often. It's expensive to do, and, and the earth's a big place. Mm. And so the idea that you're going to have found every piece of evidence when we've dug so rarely it's, it's just silly so it, it's almost like a catch-22 well we don't believe this happened so we're not going to bother digging and by the way if you don't have anything that we found in a dig we can't prove this is true it's just circular so hmm. again there's plenty of evidence it just doesn't happen to be archaeological evidence although we do have some archaeological evidence but the, a lot of the evidence is either geological or or linguistic or cartographic there's lots of different ways to prove a case hmm. Well, one of the issues that uh, does come up, of course, is that of the carvings. Now, as, as we've discussed before, the mm-hmm. Narragansett Bay area here in Rhode Island, uh, there are lots of, of stone carvings around, particularly around the bay, uh, runic inscriptions, things of this kind, at least right. things that have been interpreted as that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I always joke that uh, Ben's uh, older brother, Jonathan, made uh, two major archaeological discoveries before the age of four. Because <laughs> we were out uh, the Arnold Point Cupstone, which had been uh, lost apparently during the Hurricane of '38, and he found it. Uh, oh wow! Kind of washed up the beach, uh, and, and it has a very strange um, bunch of carvings. It, it's like the uh, the Big Dipper. There, it's a cupstone, as as it's called. Uh, the the Big Dipper minus the seventh star, and it was okay. adjacent to the mouth of a mine, an old coal mine, uh, coal from which had been found in Greenland. Uh, in uh, Viking yes. sites, yeah, and, and I mean, you know all this, but some of the listeners might not. So uh, the point is, you know, that's evidence. But as far as the carvings are concerned, you can't carbon date rock, as far as I know. And uh, you know, you run into right. this. And I was involved in Nero myself in the eighties. In fact, I was an officer because nobody else wanted to be secretary. So, I, <laughs> so up in uh, at Mystery Hill, as it was called at the time, or America's Stonehenge uh, now, uh, owned and operated by our, our good mutual friend uh, Dennis Stone, who's been right. on the show many times. Um, it's difficult. To, you know, you really you have to find you know charcoal. Uh, that's under the rocks, things of that kind, and you carbon date that. Um, how do you really prove that a carving, after all that, is from where we think it's from, or right. the period, so, or who did it, or this or that? You know. So I mentioned we have we have the Westford Knight carving here in in Westford. We think it's about six hundred years old because the the artifact itself it's a medieval battle sword. It's it's contemporaneous to medieval times. It's not a dagger or a saber. So. You know, just common sense, you would carve what's familiar to you. But obviously, that's not proof, that's just a theory. The, the carving is on the rock ledge, and we can't take the rock ledge and bring it into a laboratory. However, there's a, there's a second artifact that was found a little bit upstream from this called the boat stone. And that boat stone, we believe, marks the, uh, the winter encampment site of Sinclair and his group. 
Uh, it's about the size of uh, a small desktop. That artifact we did, we can ship, and we did ship to a geologist in Minnesota by the name of Scott Walter, who's the host of the uh, History Channel show America on Earth. Uh-huh. Now, geologists can take a look at the uh, microscopically take a look at the carved areas of a stone and give a general idea of how long that carved area has been in a weathering environment, freezing and thawing, being acted upon by the rain, being acted upon by the wind. Uh, Over time, the grains in a carved area of stone start to wear away, the mica wears away. And again, geologists can give you a rough estimate as to how long that stone has been in a weathering environment since the carving was made. And Walter concluded that the boat stone, this other artifact that's associated with the Western Night, uh, was consistent had weathering patterns consistent with that of a 600-year-old artifact. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, that's science that puts us right back to around 1400 and, and makes it consistent with, with, with what we think was happening, which is right around that time period Sinclair and his group came over. So even though it's not carbon dating, we, and even though we can't get an exact date, we can get a pretty tight range based on the geology of some of these stones. Okay. Walter did a similar thing with the artifact called the Kensington Rune Stone in Minnesota, to establish that that runestone itself was not a, a modern day or 19th century hoax, but indeed was much older than that, hmm. and basically authenticated that carving as well. Okay. Well, uh, with that, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break, uh, and we'll be back in just a moment with a question from a listener. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful but rainy Blackstone River, River Valley. And we'll be back with our tremendous guest, David S. Brody, to talk more about the Templars. We'll stick with us. Get down to brass tacks at home with me, Bob Vila, and my tip of the day every day right here. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day can only be heard on ON AM and FM every weekday at 6.50 in the morning. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day is brought to you by Cumberland Kitchen and Bath Design Center. Bob Vila's Home Improvement Tip of the Day on ON Radio. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal after our brief break. And we're speaking today with David S. Brody, a novelist, researcher, and a renaissance man when it comes to the Knights Templar and all sorts of interesting experiences in New England before uh, Columbus, perhaps. Now, uh, David, we have a question from Cheryl in, of all places, Minnesota. And Cheryl wants to know if the Templars buried their treasure on Oak Island, Nova Scotia. Pardon me. <laughs> That's interesting. So that, that opens opens a door to some interesting developments in the research recently, which is a couple of journals that have been discovered, uh, Templar journals, one from the 1100s and one from the 1300s, and they seem to indicate that the Templars did indeed land someplace in Nova Scotia. Did they bring their treasure to Oak Island? Could be. Um, there's evidence that indicates that it's possible. There's also some intriguing evidence that says that... Uh, descendants of the Templars, the Freemasons, may have gone up to Oak Island in the years uh, right before the American Revolution to retrieve that treasure, and that treasure was used to fund the American Revolution, which is a, w- would be a, 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 an amazing development if it can be proven true, but it sort of makes sense. It's, sort of, it's one of those things that you say, uh-huh, that does make some sense. Well, I mean, if, they couldn't have funded very much of it because Congress was broke during the whole revolution. I think they still owe money for the revolution. <laughs> right. But uh, it's um, 
And for those not familiar with Oak Island, it's uh, an island off the coast of Nova Scotia, Canada, and we have uh, tremendous, uh, inter- tre- tremendously interesting stories that come from there. There, there was some excavation has been done really since the 19th century, and everyone's and, and it go, keeps going down. It's a tremendous engineering feat of whoever did it, and uh, tantalizing evidence has arisen, such as a, a few coins and some papers. And now, with the current technology, they're able to go down, and uh, I guess they built something of a case on, and they get out with cameras, and they still haven't reached uh, the three. You get to a certain point, and it's right next to the ocean. I mean, it floods. So nobody really knows. We're hoping to get up there. We have a lot of family up there, and a couple of them supposedly know, uh, you know, people who can get us into the site. So we'll we'll report on that when the time comes. Mm. But uh, thank you, Cheryl, for the question. Yeah, and just just to add one thing. Yeah. So the Templars, sort of one of the symbols of the Templars historically has always been the oak tree. And even though oak trees are native to Nova Scotia, the kind of oak trees that grow on that island are from northern Africa, they're like almost Middle Eastern oak trees. They, they're not native there. The question is how those oak trees ended up there and perhaps did the Templars uh, plant them as sort of a, as, as a way to, as, as you're coming down the coast, to know which island to go to because the oak trees that they have there are the are again the sort of African uh, species of oak tree, which is interesting itself. I never knew that. Hmm. Wow. Yes. Every time we talk to this man, we learn something. Yeah, the, the more you know, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Crazy pieces, pieces of trivia. But this is the kind of stuff that... Look, one of the things that... I've been doing this for about 12 years, and it used to be when people asked me about this, I would be very careful with my language, saying, you know, it's a legend, we think it's true. But one of the things I learned in law school was that uh, when you build a case... And you take all the evidence on the table and you build a case. When new evidence comes in the door, it either needs to corroborate your case, which tells you you're on the right track, or it's contrary to your case, in which case you need to revise your theory. What's been happening in the past decade is pretty much every piece of evidence that comes in the door right now is supporting this idea of Templar travel in the late 1300s. So I'm more and more confident and less and less do I use qualifying language when I talk about this. But that oak tree thing is another one of those pieces that sort of fits in the small piece of the puzzle, but it fits right in. Sure. Let's get back to the notion of divine feminine as it, may, as it might relate to the Templars. Uh, just uh, another point is that the... Um, uh, the, the notion... We're not necessarily talking about a goddess here as opposed to God. Now, maybe in some cases, but uh, a little background. Uh, in the Eastern Church, uh, what's today known as the Orthodox Church, uh, Mary Magdalene, for example, was known as is still known as equal to the apostles. They didn't seem to have the gender problem. I mean, it's male-oriented. The priesthood is all male. But, but, there's a, but there's, the celibacy rule doesn't exist, and there's a, a female presence in the church, like you usually wouldn't see traditionally in the Western church, the Roman Catholic or Protestant churches. So the notion of uh, what I suppose would be the Shekinah, which is a name we haven't brought up yet, which right. was the female counterpart, at least that's how it's thought of, uh, to Yahweh in ancient Judaism, uh, matching up with Karsag and Nin Karsag, you know, the, some of the, the non-Hebraic gods, uh, god figures of uh, the ancient world as well, contemporary with the, with the writing of Genesis, you know, Karsag epics. Uh, Nin Karsag was the female uh, equivalent. So you have, like, again, this family sort of set up, and the, the, the Shekinah, as a lot of people don't realize, was Yahweh's ancient counterpart. And I kind of got, uh, I mean, what, what happened to that concept? I mean, did it, did it turn into the Virgin Mary eventually, or, or what? I mean, and then 
get transferred to the Templars that way, or what happened? Right. So, so yes, I mean, the, the Virgin Mary definitely is a, a sort of the Christian personification of the Shekinah, the Shekinah, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, and and I, what the Templar, I think, what the Templars, uh, what happened to the Templars is that they came to understand that European society, and when I say that, I mean the European Church. Uh, was unhealthy. It was uh, not sustainable. They saw they saw evidence of other healthier societies in their travels, and they and what they said was it's out of balance. Nature requires balance, duality, male female, light dark, cold hot, as above so below. And and we're we're too far to the one side. We need to create balance again. And so yes, so they they venerated the the feminine, whether it was Mary Magdalene or the Virgin Mary. One of the fascinating things to me about the Newport Tower is why did they build a tower as opposed to some other structure? The name Mary Magdalene, Magdalene is the Hebrew word for uh, tower. So it really her name is Mary of the Tower, the Tower of Mary. And so was the Newport Tower built as a monument to Mary, using her name as sort of the, the wordplay there? You know, I've always been intrigued by that, but there's lots of evidence that what the Templars were doing was trying to establish some kind of society that recognized the importance of the feminine as a way to regain health because during the medieval times things were things were ugly in Europe at the time I mean just society was a mess and yeah. we're trying to fix things okay I'm just wondering where do we have any evidence about where the Templars uh, in their origins would get an idea like this why they would and you mentioned the idea of, of healthiness and balance but but that um, wasn't looked at the same way as it might be today Yes. Would, would so, something they would, found... Would they, yeah, so that evidence, you're, and you're right to ask yeah. about that. So I think what happened, they're, they're, they're in Europe, I'm sorry, they're in Jerusalem, they're digging, they're discovering lots of secrets of, of early Christianity, artifacts, um, you know, we know about the Dead Sea Scrolls today, but obviously there were other things that were found. I think what they found in their, in their time there was some of the writings of Christianity, writings of Jesus, writings of the other apostles... That things that hadn't, that didn't survive or things that were not incorporated into the New Testament and that these writings talked about, for example, Jesus' relationship with Mary Magdalene and her importance to his, his church, to the church. And that a lot of that was sort of uh, edited out in the Council of Nicaea in the early fourth century when yes. Christianity was sort of codified. And I think what happened was the Templars discovered the true teachings of the early church leaders and that those true teachings did elevate the feminine to a role of importance. And so they wanted to re-implement that. And, of course, that wasn't going to fly uh, with the church fathers in medieval times. Now, that makes a, a certain amount of sense because when one looks at the writing of Paul, uh, my namesake, whom I don't really like very much, <laughs> uh, he um, was very odd. I, I, think, I tend to think that he might have been a failed convert to Christianity because he was from Tarsus, supposedly, you know, to the west of the Middle East as we know, you know Jerusalem and all that. And that was a, uh, a, a trading area, a crossroads of, of a number of uh, were caravan routes. And they worshipped a young god named Attis who had all the characteristics that he later put on Jesus Christ. Uh, it, was, it was killed on a tree, he rose from the dead, and they commemorated him with bread and wine. I mean, this is a coincidence. I mean... Um, right. The wildly un-Hebraic ideas that he brought to Christianity, 
uh, and and then imposed upon the apostles who heard the gospel right from the mouth of Christ, as opposed to Paul who never even knew him. And again, I I, I don't mean to be denigrating anybody's faith here. I mean I love the church because that's where I learned to love God. However, I just I have these questions that have never really been answered, and uh, I think that um, the idea of uh, quashing the feminine may have come from the whole ideas of Paul, because by the time Nicaea took place in 325 AD, the great council of the church where they, among other things, put together the Bible as we know it today, more or less, uh, Paul had already had a great influence. Everything that was written in the Bible as it was put together was under his influence. And a number of other Christian groups that existed in the, in the early church had been quashed by this time by the Pauline doctrines. And there was there were ideas of reincarnation, there were ideas of the feminine, just as you point out, David, in some of the ancient documents that were uh, obviously suppressed. So I really hear what you're saying. Right, and, and you make the observation that you don't want to offend anybody with their beliefs. I always like to say, present the situation as follows. I don't know whether Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. I don't know if Jesus and Mary Magdalene had children like we read about in the Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And, and I'll, probably I'll never know that. But in some ways it doesn't matter. What matters is that there are pockets of people in Europe during medieval times who believed in that possibility, who believed that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were indeed married. They believed in the whole idea of the bloodline. Those beliefs are what motivates behavior and it's that behavior which changes history and so that's why i care about those questions um it's because of the history part of it it's 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 the dominoes start to fall when those beliefs uh take root and we know that in areas of provence and we know that for example prince henry sinclair who's the guy that we think was in westford in the late 1300s his family uh, is the one that built roslyn chapel in Scotland, very famously so. Uh, it was his grandson who built it in 1456. And Roslyn Chapel, in many ways, is a monument to the idea of the importance of the sacred feminine in a healthy society. I mean, it's basically nature worship. It's little green men. It's it's serpents. It's all these images of the feminine and images of Mother Nature that are really un unchristian in many ways. But this is the family that we think came over here. And so the pieces just fit together. Like it, it just it makes sense. They're motivated by the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a relationship and probably had children. He was, after all, a rabbi, and um, it would have been almost impossible for a rabbi during that time period not to marry. Well, that, that, that's one thing. I pointed that out in the, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Seminary of all places because I was a I was a seminary student for years and years, and I was a rather a, 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 a troublesome fellow uh, thorn in their side. I would ask questions like if the doctrine says Jesus is truly God and truly man, if he was truly man, wouldn't he wouldn't he marry and reproduce? You know, and they said, well, of course not. Well, what do you mean, of course not? <laughs> you know, now in the Eastern Church, I mean, they, they believe the same things, but but they don't have. I've never seen the hang-ups in there, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of openness. But be that as it may, uh, I want to just stop here and give you a chance before we run out of time here, David, to talk about your books, your website, and where people can find out more. Oh, I appreciate that. So uh, so davidbrodybooks.com, there's, there's actually eight in this series now. I just came out with another one, so it's uh, spelled B-R-O-D-Y, davidbrodybooks.com. And they're all, as you mentioned earlier, they're fiction, but they're all fiction based in fact. And so... I happen to love to read uh, 
you know, I love to learn about history, but I like to do it on a roller coaster ride if possible because it's just the kind of thing I like to read, sort of uh, learn while I'm being entertained. And so that's the kind of book I try to write. So again, there's eight in the series, and they're all basically turn on the idea that not just the Templars, but mostly the Templars, but other groups of explorers were in America uh, before Columbus, that the Atlantic Ocean is a highway, not just a barrier. And um, a lot of this, I think, goes uh, goes back. It seems like a lot of it go, does go back to the idea that the ancient people, um, sort of the human condition is to explore and to go, as the old Star Trek theme, to seek out new life and new civilization. <laughs> yeah. and if, we, if, we, if, we, if we think about human humanity in those terms, and we think about the fact that ancient people did have uh, advanced navigational skills, then it makes perfect sense that they would have crossed the Atlantic many times. We, we don't seem to have a problem with the idea that the ancient Polynesians crossed the Pacific, but yet the Atlantic, which is only half as large, that for some reason is a barrier. Right. And I just think that we, we just need to take a better look at that. So so these novels, they're again, they're available at davidbrodybooks.com. Um, you can pick them up on Amazon. They're, uh, they're $15 each, but I try to make them affordable on uh, Kindle for less than $5. Uh, and the idea is to try to start a dialogue, to try to get people to start thinking about these possibilities. We have around New England dozens of these sites which sort of scream out, pay attention to me, I'm here to tell you a story, and it's a story I've never heard before. There you go. Okay, the, the um, let, let's get back to an earlier question that, that uh, maybe we didn't quite tie up. The notion of uh, excavating beneath the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we should point out that the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans during the rebellion of the uh, 70s uh, AD, and uh, yeah. that, that was the second temple. And uh, there's all the Wailing Wall, as we know it today, tourist attraction. That's really all that's left of the temple. And you can't get under it today because the Muslim Dome of the Rock, the traditional place of um, uh, Muhammad's uh, ascension into heaven, is now on the site of the temple. And that's half, there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of diplomatic issues and, and political problems that have come from that over the centuries. Uh, but um, you, so you can't get under there really today without special permission from all these big cheeses in the Muslim jurisdiction in that area. But that wasn't the case during the Crusades when once they captured Jerusalem. What exactly did they excavate under there, or do we know what exactly they found? I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I don't know if they found Essene documents or, or, or things that might have been equivalent to the Dead Sea Scrolls under there. I mean, uh, there's a rumor they found the great treasure, or at least part of the treasure of uh, King Solomon. There are all kinds of wild stories. What do you think they found under the temple, and what do you think they brought to New England, if anything? Can, can I do uh, E, all of the above? Yeah, sure. <laughs> So we, we, we know they were there because in the 1870s, I believe, there was a British uh, um, group uh, excavation. Uh, they went under there and found found evidence that the Templars had dug uh, a thousand years earlier, so uh, or 800 years earlier. So we, we know that they were there. Um, one of the things that I heard that they found also was the head of John the Baptist. And when we think about the Templars, they were known to worship this head called Baphomet, and maybe it was the head of John the Baptist. Hmm. Uh, Definitely treasures. Uh, I think religious scrolls, yes. I think um, things like uh, you know the Ark of the Covenant, maybe. I think that was probably taken away. But other religious artifacts. So it, it's almost impossible to determine exactly what it was they found. But whatever it was, we know that they were able to leverage it into some incredible amounts of power and wealth very quickly. And so... 
something they brought something back to Europe and said, "Look what we found. You know, give us your money and, and give us your land because we got some good stuff here." How many members did the Knights Templar have in that period? So it started with nine, and it, it grew it grew very quickly after that. But the original group was nine French noblemen. Oh, and by the way, they, they've had a long a long history of a close association with, with the Sinclair family. Again, we're back to the Sinclairs, Prince Henry Sinclair, Rosalyn Chapel. But of the nine, the, the founder, uh, Hugh de Payen, was married to a Sinclair woman. So there's a close familiar relationship going way back in time between this, this explorer, the guy who came to America in 1398, going all the way back to the founding of the Templars. So it's entirely possible that after the Templars were outlawed, their treasure disappeared Many people believe it ended up in Scotland. It makes perfect sense that it would have ended up not just in Scotland, but with this family in Roslyn. And perhaps one of the reasons why Sinclair and his group were coming over here in the 1390s was to hide that treasure. Oh, okay. Uh, um, how? I'm just wondering how they would manage to get it on a ship to get it over here without being noticed. So during that time period, um, if you know, the, remember the history of Robert the Bruce, uh, yeah. you know, Mel, Mel Gibson and Braveheart. Um, uh, Robert the Bruce had been had been excommunicated by the Pope during that time period for killing his rival in church, and because of that, when the papal decree came down outlawing the Templars, Scotland was not subject to that decree. Again, they they'd been excommunicated, so many of the Templars fled to Scotland and were given safe haven by Robert the Bruce largely because they helped him defeat the English in a battle of Bannockburn in 1320-ish, somewhere around there. But that, that sort of cemented the alliance between Robert the Bruce and the Templars and gave the outlawed Templars a, a temporary safe haven. Um, and so the idea that they could have operated with impunity makes sense. The, the, the church wasn't in power in, in Scotland at that time period. However, the Templars understood that eventually the church would would retake Scotland and the Pope would reassert his jurisdiction there. And so they were quickly looking for a place to both secrete themselves and also secrete their treasure, someplace far away, hopefully. And so, again, America makes perfect sense. Uh, not to sound like Indiana Jones here, but uh, there is some evidence that I've seen over many years that this saga is still going on in the sense that uh, modern, a few modern governments are seeking the remnants of this treasure, which has been split up and scattered somewhat, and that in some cases they have been successful. Do you have any information on the modern uh, manifestation of this drama? Uh, not modern so much, but I know that Hitler in World War II was obsessed with finding the Templar treasure, finding the Holy Grail, finding... Um, the the armas christi the 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 implements of jesus's passion that the cross and the crown of thorns and whatnot because he believed these things would give him magical powers that he could somehow weaponize and so uh there were elite teams of ss agents sent out across europe to try to find these these items so uh as far as modern times i'm not aware of anything modern do, do you have any more specifics about modern governments canada can't, really, I've I've never said that's that all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, well, 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 we'll talk sometime. But excellent. Yeah, yeah, I'm always looking for good, interesting twists for my stories, my novels. So, so yeah. other than uh, for North, uh, where do you see your researches going, and uh, in in the, the next five to ten years, and what future books are you working on? So, 
I mentioned briefly that there are some journals, uh, one from the uh, 12th century. 11, there's a fascinating 1179 Templar journal. And for your, your listeners who might be watching The Curse of Oak Island, they would have seen a researcher by the name of Zena Halpern. She's been featured on the show recently. She passed away uh, back in May, unfortunately. But she had done a lot of research on these journals from 1179 that talked about a group of Templars coming across following the Norse routes across the North Atlantic and ending up in the Catskill Mountains in New York and secreting uh, some some Templar treasures there. That's a fascinating possibility, and I've been I've, I've been involved in a couple of uh, group uh, efforts to go up to the Catskills and dig in areas where these journals talk about. But we've actually uncovered some artifacts up there hmm. uh, that are consistent with those journals, and so to me that's that area. Um, oh, the other thing about that, which is fascinating, it turns out there were some senior Vatican officials in the 1980s who were up there looking for the stuff as well. Really? And when you have, when you have senior Vatican officials coming across and and looking for Templar treasures in America, that gets my attention. Like <laughs> yes, I hadn't heard the that. Va- the Vatican archives, you know, either they talk about this, they they talk about this stuff one way or the other. Either it happened or it didn't. But if you've got senior Vatican officials who are taking the stuff seriously. That tells me there's stuff in the archives that indicates, yeah, there was something going on. Gee, I had connections there. I mean, like they're going to tell me, you know, but I mean, it was... That's <laughs> this is a guy named Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, who was involved in the whole Vatican banking scandal. Oh, he, he was quite the character. He was quite yes. the character. So that, if yes. you ask what I'm doing now, the last book I just wrote called The Swagger Sword, it just was released about a month ago, it's all, it, it focuses very much on the Vatican banking scandal, Archbishop Marcinkus, and as possible treasure in the Casco Mountains. Wow. Okay, I haven't yeah, read that yet. It's, it's, it's good sure stuff. It's fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly before we run out of time, David, do the Knights Templar still exist? I mean, really still exist? You always hear rumors, but... You know, there, there, are, there are groups of Freemasons, and, and under that umbrella there's a, there's a division called the Knights Templar, but that's not what we're talking about. And then there are some uh, modern-day uh, religious quote-unquote warriors that have reconstituted themselves as the Knights Templar and that they're sworn to defend the church uh, and I've met a bunch of those guys um, but I don't think I don't think the actual Templar line has continued down through the generations I think what happened is they were outlawed and they reconstituted themselves in the fraternal order we now know as the Freemasons oh, but okay. I think many of their secrets have been lost over time okay and uh, I think we should just maybe point out before we go that the the notion of Friday the 13th comes from what was reputed at the end of the Templars. Right. The Friday the 13th of October 1307 was the day that the Templar uh, headquarters were raided and they were outlawed and many of them uh, tortured, and out, uh, tortured and put to put to death. But that's the unlucky Friday the 13th. Yes. Not a good day to be a Templar. Ben, any final uh, comments? Sir? I do not. Okay. David, fantastic conversation. We'll be in touch off the air. And, uh, you know, uh, but we just uh, really encourage people to read your books. They're great. They're well-written. And I'm, I'm an editor, so I, I can say that, uh, you know, have Thank some you. credibility. So uh, we'll talk to you soon. Ben, I very much appreciate being on your show. Thank you again, as always. Okay. All right. All right. Take care. Okay, let's go to our announcements. Uh, ben, uh, take it away. Well, you see, Christmas is nearly upon us, and uh, for any unusual friends or relatives whose tastes uh, run to the weird and unexplained, there's still time 
uh, to uh, give autographed copies of our books and our uh, latest title include or titles I should say include Behind the Paranormal Everything You Know Is Wrong and Behind the Paranormal Two. Uh, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of. And they're available online uh, from various online retailers and in some stores as well. But for autographed copies, you can visit our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, our first event of 2019 uh, will be an encore at the Town of Prospect Senior Center in Connecticut on April 23rd. We'll keep you posted as details develop. It is open to the public. It is an absolutely gorgeous venue, and uh, once you find it uh, on a side road there in a little town, it's and wonderful people, and we'll keep you posted as we go. Uh, my next book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, uh, will be published in hardcover in 2019, and we'll keep you posted on the release date uh, from Schiffer Books. And also at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, you can find out more about the show, uh, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, uh, and you'll find over 800 free recorded shows from our 10-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, there are also links to several charities Ben and I have adopted. These include uh, especially uh, uh, veterans' uh, charities, uh, USACares.org, wonderful group that helps veterans financially. They can't meet their mortgage payments, this sort of thing. Uh, given month, out goes a check. Great, great people uh, whom we know. So please check that out, USACares.org. Also, Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Uh, as a veteran myself, I can say that certainly I, I think our brothers in, in Canada very often don't get all the services that uh, American veterans receive, and we encourage uh, people to support that charity as well because uh, Mike Blaze up there in, uh, in Ontario uh, does a lot of work in his group to um, further uh, legislation in the provinces and in the federal level to help Canadian veterans. They're uh, doing great work there too. Uh, and also he- Helping Haiti's Orphans. That's a Rhode Island-based organization. Uh, I know uh, one of the people who runs that, doing tremendous things uh, for Haiti's orphans, uh, starting in the 2010 earthquake, uh, terrible events down there in Haiti, and now they run a wonderful orphanage and a transitional home for the older children, and uh, just just great things. Helping Haiti's Orphans. Please check that out. There's, there are links to all these things on our on our website. Uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. Tony Larray out there doing amazing things with high-risk youth, uh, at-risk youth in some of the uh, more challenging areas of, the, of that great city of Los Angeles, and uh, matching them up with corporations uh, for job training and doing great things. And also the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, uh, so, uh, something we support. We've even broadcast live from their Providence uh, walk at, at uh, one point a few years ago. Mm. So, Ben, what do we have uh, cooking for next week? So, next week, December 23rd, uh, here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM, uh, we have a very unusual subject, the Hudson Valley UFO Flap, with researcher and author Linda Zimmerman. And I just point out, too, that <coughs> that's at the western edge <coughs> of our Connecticut Triangle, and... Uh, we encourage people to listen to that show and might be something relevant to that uh, interest there. Uh, we leave you this afternoon with a thought from that old sweetheart, Albert Einstein. The important thing is never to stop questioning. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of... Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.